The crucifixion has happened. The resurrection has taken place. And so we are on the, the very edge of the fulfillment of the gospel. Life, death, burial, resurrection. And there is a group of disciples who had pledged their all to Jesus. They had given up houses. They had given up lands. They had given up occupations. They had been following him for three years, both men and women. And their hearts plummeted when they saw Jesus impaled on the Roman cross, situated between two common thieves. They watched him there, bloody and beaten and marred and and dying. They themselves heard all of the accusations and the taunts and the scoffing hurled upon the Lord. They saw the blood. They saw the patches in his face where his beard had been ripped off. They saw him swollen and bloody and beaten, so much so that Isaiah said in uh, hundreds of years earlier, centuries earlier, Isaiah said that he would be so disfigured that he would barely be recognized as a human being. That's how badly Jesus was beaten and tortured. And then they saw him give up the ghost, as the old King James said. He yielded up his spirit after he cried out, Tetelestai, which is a a word that means it is finished, it is complete, it is done. Jesus gave that victorious cry from the cross saying, in essence, I have accomplished every single thing the Father sent me to accomplish. Nothing is left undone. I have paid it all. It is finished. And with that cry, he dismissed his spirit from his body and his head hung and they watched him die. Now, they didn't have Luke's gospel. They didn't have Mark, Matthew. They didn't have John's gospel. They didn't have a New Testament. And they didn't have the information that you and I have. All they saw was their dreams shattered, their hopes crushed, their lives that they thought were going this way all of a sudden went this way, and they had no answers. There was a hasty burial of Jesus. It was Sabbath. The the day was drawing close. The, The next day was the Sabbath. They knew that they would not be able to prepare his body properly. So hastily, Joseph of Arimathea got the body, put it in a tomb. And where we pick up in Luke chapter number 24 is the first opportunity that they had to care for their Savior's body, which was lying in a tomb. In Luke chapter 24, verse number one, it says, but on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. 
There are so many different passages we could focus on on Easter Sunday morning. And out of all of them, I chose this one this uh, past couple of weeks to, to really fixate on because I take great encouragement that these disciples, that these women and men that were followers of Jesus, I take great encouragement that they had some inner struggles in fully comprehending the goodness of God and what had taken place. Now, I may not be like some of you. Some of you just seem to breeze through your Christian life. Some of you never have doubts and you never have struggles and you never have questions, but you have this um, elevated sense of faith that, that if you can see it and read it, you boom, you believe it and you never struggle with it. I'm, I'm just a little bit more twisted, a little, well, twisted's not the right word, but complicated, I guess. Um, I, I, I get stuck on some things. And so when I see what we just read and as I unpack it for you, maybe some of you who are like me can say, well, I'm not alone. I want to believe everything that I am meant to believe, but sometimes I struggle and I'm slow to believe. Hey, I'll just say this at the very onset. I'd rather be slow to believe than refusing to believe. And if you're slow to believe today, hey, you're in great company because I'm about to show you about over a dozen people that felt the same way. So we're going to talk about resurrection today, and let's just go back up into the first three verses. And let's look at the human response to the resurrection, and we're going to see it in this small group of women who wanted to be so close to Jesus. The first thing we see is their eager hearts in verse number one. The Bible simply says that on the first day of the week, and it was early at dawn, that these women went to the tomb and they were taking the spices that they had prepared. Now remember with me, they were forbidden to do the normal, honorable work on the corpse of Jesus Christ because the Sabbath had come shortly after he was taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb. And so you've got these women who, by the way, guys, you're just going to have to accept this. The women in the Gospels always seem to be much more committed and devoted and in love with Christ than the men were. I would say that's probably, generally speaking, the case today. It was the women that were willing to risk everything by showing up at the cross. It was the women that were the first ones to rush to the tomb as dawn was breaking on the first day of the week. It was the women. Why? They had these eager hearts. The Bible portrays them. I can almost see it this way, that they were just waiting for the sun to come up so that they would know that the, the Sabbath had ended, the first day of the week had come, and they, they took these spices. And typically what would happen is they would seek to get into the tomb. They didn't know how they were going to do it because they knew that there was a massive stone in front of it. But if they could get past that stone, they would go into the body of Jesus and they would take these spices and they would rub all over the, the claws that held the body of the master. And they would do that in honor. But the thing that speaks to me the most is that they, they, they just wanted to be near him. Amen. Such was their love and such was their devotion. They didn't know where to go in their hearts. They were, they were mixed up. They were confused. But they were eager just to be near him again, to hear his voice again, to be, to be touched by his hands again, to watch him smile again, to hear him teach again. And all of that had fallen silent three days earlier when they watched him bow his head. So this first opportunity was to run to him and their devotion and their love, just to be near him again as they were processing their grief. Now they get to the tomb, and this is where we see baited hearts, baited 
drawn, compelled. Where do they see that? The Bible says when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, if you're new to Scripture, if you never really walked through this passage of Scripture, we we bury people in the ground. That's typically the way we bury people here in the West in the 21st century. We we will dig a hole, we will place a casket with the body in there, and we will cover it back up. But in Jesus' day, a lot of the time, they would carve out into the side of a rocky place, uh, a, a place just small enough to place the body and maybe have just a little bit more room. Now, the officials had ordered that for Jesus' tomb, that the Romans would roll a massive stone in front of it to seal it off. Why did they do that? Because even his enemies knew that when he preached and he prophesied, Jesus said that he would die, be buried, and rise three days later. And so, foolish as they were, they thought, well, we'll keep God in that tomb by rolling a rock in front of it. Of course, they didn't believe he was God, but they didn't want anybody coming and stealing his body so that perhaps a mock testimony, a false testimony that he had risen from the grave. And so they rolled the stone in front, but when the women got there, as the sun was coming up, the stone was completely rolled away. You can imagine their shock. You can imagine the perplexity that what would have hit them, what's going on here, what has happened here, confusion, shock, wonder, and they stand there and they're looking. And then in verse number three, we see that those same baited hearts that were eager hearts became overwhelmed hearts. The Bible says when they went in, so they got in in some way, either their head or maybe they walked all the way in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you read the other gospel writers, and and I encourage you to do that, they supply other details. Each gospel rendition of this account will supply details that the other writers didn't supply. But what we find out is that they were heartbroken. Mary Magdalene, in particular, was brokenhearted. The other women seem to have run off. Mary Magdalene is there, and she is lamenting the fact that he is not there. As a matter of fact, Jesus would appear to her momentarily. It's not in Mark's go- or Luke's gospel, but he would appear to her momentarily. And she mistook him. She couldn't see him for, for who he was. And she thought he was the gardener. And this is what poured out of her heart. Sir, just tell me where they've taken my Lord and I will go and get him. I don't know, uh, I don't know where any of us are as far as devotion. But I can tell you, every year when I study these passages around the resurrection, I I think to myself, there was something in the heart of Mary Magdalene in particular, but also these other women, that was pure, unadulterated, unsophisticated, uncaring what anybody else thought. They just wanted proximity to Jesus Christ. They just wanted to be near him, even if the the best that they could do was just to get near his, his dead body. It's how much they loved him. It's how overwhelmed they were. So they look into the tomb, and Jesus isn't there. If I'm them, I would have said, well, what does this mean? Where is he? Who took him? How can I find my king, my lord, my master? The human response to the resurrection uh, is varied. When we walk in friendship with God, when we stop viewing Jesus Christ as a religious icon, 
when he becomes more than an, an emblem stretched out on a cross, perpetually hanging there in shame and in an inglorious display. When he moves beyond that religious relic to us and he becomes personal to us, we have that same desire that Mary and the other women have. We, we just want to be near him. Can I tell you that I'm here today not because I felt like God needed to check it off on my list because so I could be uh, called a good boy today? I'm not here because of a duty. I'm not here because uh, I, I, I can just tell you why I'm here. I'm here because there is an aspect uh, of experiencing his presence that is altogether a different dynamic when you're experiencing him alongside of others. But if, if all we could do was go to church to experience him, I would be a sad case Monday through Saturday. But isn't it great that this afternoon you can be as close as you want to with him? Tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, right now, my friend who, who texted me and said his father enters into, in, into glory, right now he can be as close to Jesus as he desires to be. I think the key that I see in these women is that they wanted it. They wanted it more than they wanted anything else. So let's go a little further into the text. Go down into verse 4 with me because we're not only going to take a look at the human response to the resurrection, but the angelic response to the resurrection. The resurrection was such a, uh, an event of magnitude that the Lord didn't want it just to be humanly communicated. He dispatched two of heaven's angels to come down and declare as witnesses what had just happened with Jesus Christ, their own king. First of all, we see this, the angels radiated heaven's glory. Look, look in verse number four. While the women were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, the women, and they bowed their faces to the ground. Just, just stop there for a minute. So Mary Magdalene and the other women had gone there looking for one in grave clothes. They didn't find him, but they did find two in glory clothes. They saw these angels who had been sent from heaven. And these angels were there at the place of resurrection. And the Bible describes them as, as, as being there dazzling. It's, it's a Greek word that's also used when it speaks of Jesus' transfiguration. That means they emanated such a glory, such a brightness, such a light that was pouring forth from them that as Peter and James and John fell on their face when Jesus was transfigured, the women fell on their faces as these two angels uh, revealed the glory of heaven. Uh, just a quick side note, I believe in the ministry of angels today. I believe that angels are working among us today. If you don't believe that, you need to explain to all of us, well, if they're not, what are they doing then? It's very, it, it just real quick rabbit trail here. It's amazing to me how, how Orthodox Christians, those of us that believe our Bibles, will talk about demonic activity all of the time and will we'll say, oh, yes, they move. They're, they're terrible. They come to steal, kill, and destroy. We talk about demonic possession and demonic presence and ominous demonic feelings and all of the demons getting the glory. But when it comes to angels, we just kind of get real dignified. <laughs> well, the angels are in heaven. Well, friends, I'm going to tell you something. The angels are God's ministers. And they are here to minister in part to the church for our well-being. One of the glories of heaven is going to be when we get there and we get to find out how much activity the angels were working while we were here on earth that we never even noticed. I don't mind telling you they're in the room today. 
I don't mind telling you that they're out in the parking lot today. I don't mind telling you that they're over at 12 Stone. They're over at IHOP. They're at North Metro, Hebron, Crossroads, Gwinnett Hall. They're all over the place. What are they doing? They're doing the same thing we're doing. They are facilitating the kingdom as it's been assigned to them in their own jurisdictions. So these angels showed up and boom, they were bright. Um, We do find out that not every time an angel manifests is it with all of the glory and all of the revelation that they indeed are angels. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that angels can be in your presence and you're not even aware that you're in the presence of an angel. Sometimes strangers that you're showing hospitality to may actually be angels in disguise. That's what the scriptures say. But on this case, these angels were reflecting the culture of heaven. Bright, holy, and hopeful. What an amazing sight it would have been when for the last three days these women had experienced nothing but darkness, nothing but heartbreak, nothing but gloom, nothing but hopelessness. And then as they were making their way and and just at the very bare minimum to be near the body of Jesus, finding that the body was gone and sinking even lower into their personal abyss, boom, God says, now angels, and they reveal their glory. They shine light into the area and they begin to communicate. Give me some of that, amen. But the angels didn't just show up to shine out. out. They, They also proclaimed some astounding news. The Bible says the angels, who obviously they took upon the form of humans, the men said to them, here's the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. This was the most encouraging rebuke that has ever been offered. He's, they're g- gen- uh, gently rebuking the women. I mean, you can almost hear and say, hey, ladies, what are you all doing here? This is a place of death. Why are you looking for Jesus in the context of death? Why are you seeking the dead or the living among the dead? Now, we understand that the angels were referring to the women coming to a physical tomb to look for the physical body of Jesus. And we're going to come back to the fact that they just dropped this on them. It was very subtle, but in essence, they just said, hey, he's not dead, he's alive. Now, the women aren't picking up on this right away, but that's in that question. In essence, they kind of couched it in flowery language, the the fact that he's raised, that he's alive, that death could not hold him. That Satan's greatest weapon that he fired against Jesus Christ, the weapon of death, that that great weapon coming against the Son of God, and Jesus took that weapon and reversed it and killed death. See, brothers and sisters, very, very reminiscent of what David did to Goliath. It's an Old Testament picture. David slung the stone, and, he, and Goliath went down. But it's amazing to me that sometimes we pass over the fact that David then took Goliath's own weapon and cut off Goliath's head. Jesus took Satan's own weapon, death. He took it on himself. He took it in himself. He took that weapon, bore the full brunt of Satan's highest arsenal. And then three days later, he steps out and says, what else you got, devil? He came forth in life and victory. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Can I make some practical pastoral application with that? Well, thank you. I will then. <laughs> uh, I, 
I, I walked away from church at age 14. I was your stereotypical kind of Bible Belt suburbanite kid. And at a very young age, I prayed a prayer that some well-intending person told me, just pray this prayer, ask Jesus in your heart. In my denomination, they also said, you need to get baptized. And so if you'll pray this prayer and you'll get baptized, you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, I prayed the prayer when I was about 9 or 10, but I waited about four years to get baptized. I don't know why, but at age 14, I got baptized. And I remember when I came up out of the pool, and a, a dear friend of mine, a young man my age, he, he was so longing for me to get baptized because they believed if I didn't get baptized, I would, if I died, I would not go to heaven. And so when I came up out of the pool and I was getting toweled off at Christian camp in 1984, he looked at me and he said, you're perfect now. You're perfect. I don't remember what I said, but I do remember about three hours later, we were out on the ball field at Christian camp, and I botched a fly ball, and I said something, beep, that I should not have said, and he looked at me, and I said, can't be perfect forever. That was my attitude about God. That was my attitude about sin. That was my attitude about the saving grace of God. It was just nothing. It was just a bunch of religion. Matter of fact, I think I wanted Jesus, but in that season of my life, I was looking for the living among the dead. Dead theology, my own dead heart, um, dead religious maneuvering. And so I walked away from the church at age 14. A lot of bad stuff happened in between age 14 and age 24. The hardest thing that I, the hardest work that I would say that God did in my life was to convince me at about age 22, two years before I was truly born again, that that prayer and that baptism meant nothing. It was religion. Why do I even bother bringing that up? Because I believe a couple of things. One, I believe that every time I preach, no matter where I am, and if I'm in the West, there are people who prayed a similar prayer, went through the same religious maneuverings, had the same empty promise made to them, have a general belief in God about the, on the level that the demons believe in God, believing all the facts, but there's never been the key element that is needed in order for a person to be justified before a holy God. What is that key element? Surrender. There can be no salvation without surrender. And so that, that for me at age 22, I realized as my friend took me through the Bible and showed me all what the Bible said about guys like me who said one thing with their mouth but live like hell literally the rest of their lives. And I realized, oh, what I say with my mouth doesn't have any substance to it. And I had to choose to believe. Do I believe what I want to believe holding on to an empty prayer and a baptism, or do I believe the word of God? And it took two years after that before the Lord broke me. So I would say that just as a, a gentle warning, but also a transparent confession. That's the way I was. That's not meant to condemn anybody, but it may be used to alert you that if you're in that same category. But here's the thing. I also know there's another group of people here that you, you genuinely love the Lord. You're genuinely born again. But because of dead things that you have associated with the Lord, dead churches, dead Christians, dead practices, dead, dead, dead services, that, that you've, you've, you've kind of been around the, the ring with all things religion in the Bible Belt, and you said, man, that's just no life to it, and you've given up on the people of God. I'm just going to say this. One of, the, one of the pursuits of this assembly is that we would never, ever root ourselves down in another, yet another flavor of religion. 
We don't want to be a club. We don't want to be yet another siloed ministry. We want to be a, a kingdom people that are living day in and day out with the Son of God who lives his life through us. And when that happens, there's going to be a different dynamic. There's going to be a different mark. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I say to some of you who may not have ever given up on God, but you gave up on the church, it's time for you to get back into the game and say, I'm going to be part of the solution, not part of the perpetuation of the problem. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. They weren't expecting that, by the way. They, They didn't expect to hear that. They, they went to a scene of death expecting to go deeper in the atmosphere of death. And yet God intervened and interrupted and just sent two of heaven's innumerable angels and says, angels, go tell these ladies, my daughters, that their king is alive. So go down in verse 6 into verse 7. So the angels first deposited the gospel truth. The first witnesses of the full gospel were angelic. They said, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. One of the things that that the disciples, and this is why I say they were slow to believe, do you know that at least on five different occasions, Jesus told his followers, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. On a couple of times, he said, they're going to crucify me. And I am going to rise from the dead three days after they kill me. He told them that not once, not twice, not three times, not just four times, but at least five times. Jesus, face to face, eye to eye with the disciples saying, you need to get this. You need to understand this. I don't want you to be caught off guard. This is what's going to happen. They either forgot all of it or at least forgot the second half. And so the angels are, are, are doing what good teachers do. They remind you of what you've already been taught because we lose it sometimes. Sometimes you don't need a, a rebirth. You just need to get reacquainted with truth that you've forgotten, truth that went stale on you, truth that's not fresh anymore. And so he, these angels reacquainted them, and they, they, it's just amazing to me. And it, it, can, it happens, by the way, every time that we gather and somebody's preaching and teaching a message. You see, all of those disciples, women and men, they heard the words that Jesus said when he said, I will be delivered into the hands of wicked men, I will be crucified, and I will rise again the third day. They heard the words but missed the message. That's the danger in being in a meeting like this. The danger is you are hearing every word that comes out of the preacher or the teacher's mouth, but you're not getting the overarching message that God is preaching to you. Do you know how many sermons are going on right now in this room? Hundreds of sermons are being preached right now. There's only one human preacher, but the Holy Spirit is able to preach a sermon to you, a sermon to you, a sermon to you, a sermon to you, a sermon to you way back there. You're not hiding. I got you. Amen. A sermon to every single one of us. Don't miss the message. Don't hear the words and miss the content of what God's saying. God's saying through a resurrection message that there's hope, that there's power, that there's victory, that you are an overcomer if you are in Christ, that there's nothing that you can't, that you will face that he can't extract 
some wonderful, beautiful victory from. But if all we hear is the words, it's just a long sermon by a short little Irish guy who gets red in the face. Let's go down to the last point. Because ultimately, a general human response, that's one thing. An angelic response is another thing. But let me tell you where the rubber meets the road. It's the individual response to the resurrection. Every single person, hear me. I'm going to get serious here for a second. Every one of us have to individually respond to the gospel message. Peter's going to show us a little bit of what that looks like. First of all, the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection, humanly speaking. Look in verse number 8. The angels primed the pump of their memory, and the Bible says they remembered Jesus' words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. And then the women are mentioned, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the other Mary, the mother of James, and some of the other women. And so they, they went and told these things to the apostles. Now, i got to do a little cultural unpacking here. All right, so we're going back 2,000 years ago in a highly patriarchal culture where women were not valued. I always like to say this. People really give Christianity um, a, a terrible rub, saying, oh, no, those Christians, they just want to keep the women down. Do you, you do realize with me that it was Jesus Christ and Christianity and Christians that actually liberated women. In every culture, women were oppressed. They were treated as property. It was Jesus Christ that brought in the teaching that in him there is neither male nor female, that we are on equal ground. Yet our culture now today says, well, it's, it's Christianity that oppresses women. Well, bad versions of Christianity may, may do that, but not biblical versions. See, these women, they see the angels. They see the empty tomb. They're retaught the prophetic word. It clicks. They not only heard the words, they now got the message. And they, they go back to their leaders. You've got the apostles. You've got the disciples. You've got 11 of them that are still alive. Judas is suffering judgment for his betrayal of Jesus. Judas is gone. But the other 11 are out there somewhere. And so the women go and find their leaders. And they're testifying. The, the, the tomb's empty. His body's not there. We saw two angels, and, and Mary would have been able to say at this point, I saw the Lord. He revealed himself to me. You remember that, right? Mary thought he was the gardener saying, show me where his body is, and I'll go and get it. And Jesus spoke one word. He spoke her name. He says, Miriam, Mary, Mary. And she, her eyes were open, and she knew it was him. And so she knew, and the women knew that he was alive, that it wasn't a myth, that it wasn't some fabricated story. And so with zeal, and joy, and vigor, and energy, and love, and hope, and peace, all of that just swirling in their hearts of devotion. They, they make a fast track back to the disciples as the first witnesses, humanly speaking, of the resurrection. Uh, I'll just throw this in there. One of the, one of the hallmarks as people study the uh, feasibility of the resurrection, one of the evidences that is given to say the resurrection, the accounts of the resurrection in the Bible must be true is this. Did you know that women in the first century, their testimony was not even allowed to be entered into Jewish courts? They were completely disregarded. And, and so in, in the first century, women weren't even allowed to testify. So if the gospel was a made-up story by a bunch of disciples who were embarrassed because their Savior got killed, and so they had to concoct a story, the last thing they're going to do is make the women the first witnesses of the gospel. 
of the resurrection. Why? Because their testimony would have been laughed at. It would have been scoffed. By the way, it's about to get laughed at. Not by pagans, but by the apostles. Gentlemen, buckle up. As quick as the women were to believe, we see in verse number 11, the men were the first to doubt the resurrection. When they go back to the apostles, verse 11 says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They did not believe the women. Silly women. Silly, foolish women. Emotionally volatile women. Calm down, sisters. Embrace reality. Come on, ladies. Y'all should have helped me there. That was weak. I'm going out on a limb for you, and you're like, amen. I, listen, let's just process this for a minute. What is it about the daughters of God, or just women in general, that can just somehow just give themselves more openly, more freely, just to, to release, to believe more easily? I don't, I don't know what the, there, there could be some general answers. I don't know. Maybe it's because men are, are more complicated thinkers. That's a generality. I, I, I don't know. Maybe just men like to be in control. Maybe that's it. We, we don't want to give ourselves to something we can't explain or control. Okay. I hit something there. So the men. The men are just saying, I don't think so. So the ladies keep going on and on. And somewhere, I can just, I can imagine this, somewhere there's a shift in the room. There's something that happens, at least with Peter and John. So they're listening and the women and they're, and they're seeing Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the other Mary and the other women. And tears are coming down their faces and they're smiling for the first time in three days. And Mary's saying, no, I've seen them, I've seen them, I've seen them, I've seen them. And so what do men do? They go and check the facts. They're going to go check the facts. This is exactly what they do. Look in verse number 12. And thank God that they did. So Peter was the first one to decide for himself. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. The other gospel writers tell us that John outran him, but Peter was the leader in the early church. And Peter gets there, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the evidence, the grave clothes lying by themselves. Um, Luke's pretty succinct here. says that Peter just went home marveling at what had happened. Peter is the first one. He's a man of action. He gets a bad rap, though. Peter oftentimes spoke before he thought. He said things that, I mean, who, who else among the disciples did Jesus call Satan? He said that to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Not a good day for a follower of Jesus. <laughs> but Peter, in being a man of action, sometimes impetuous, sometimes impulsive, but he was never afraid to take action, save the one time where he denied Jesus. So John and he make a bolt for the tomb. John gets there first. He peeks in. The Bible tells us, not in this passage, 
that Peter just barges in. He examines all the evidence. And immediately, something begins to happen in the heart of Peter. An ember begins to glow. It begins to spark. It's hope. It's possibilities. It's that could it be? How could it be? This is impossible, yet, yet I feel it to be true. And the Bible says he leaves the tomb because there was nothing left for him there. And he goes home and he's pondering these things. That's where our passage ends today. But that's not where the story ends. Over the next 40 days, according to Dr. Luke, when he wrote the first chapter of the book of Acts, over the next 40 days, Luke's testimony is that Jesus showed himself alive by many undeniable proofs. That Jesus Christ did not hide. As a matter of fact, we find later, Paul would write, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would say that Jesus made a private appointment with Peter. That Jesus appeared to the women, then Jesus appeared to Peter. Think about that. I love this about the Savior. Peter had failed Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus. Peter had taken an oath with strong language that he never knew Jesus Christ. The Bible says as they were leading Jesus out of that courtyard that after Peter had denied him and the rooster had crowed again, that Jesus locked eyes with Peter and that, that look from Jesus melted Peter. And the Bible says he ran out and he wept bitterly. So for three days, Peter's living in the backwash of his unfaithfulness to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the idea I had about God when I grew up because I was like Peter. I, I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing, living in ways that I shouldn't have been living. And, and meanwhile, knowing truths, but refusing to, to yield and surrender. And, and I always thought God was looking for me to squash me. I figured the eye of God was going out throughout the whole earth looking for Jeff Lau so he could pummel him and, and bring him to nothing. Jesus goes looking for Peter, not to ruin him, but to restore him. I'm going to say this, I'm almost done. Matter of fact, worship team, if you will, come on up. Some of you have failed God. Maybe big failures, colossal failures. You got shame going on in your heart. You're living under a cloud of guilt. The voice that you hear most often is the voice of the accuser, and you've mistaken it for the voice of God. I want to tell you, when Jesus goes looking for people, it's not to destroy them, it's to deliver them. Amen. It's not to finish them, it's to forgive them. Yes. It's not to ruin them, it's to redeem them. Yes. And if you're here today, the same one who went after Peter and Peter's colossal failure in the backwash of rejecting Jesus Christ and denying him, Jesus went and found Peter to restore him. The scriptures go on to say, that he would appear in an upper room eight days later when all of the disciples, including Thomas, were there. And Thomas was slow to believe. Thomas struggled. Thomas said, I will not believe that he's alive until I can touch him and see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands. And Jesus said, Thomas, if that's what it takes, here I am. Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Then, we're not told when it took place, but Paul wrote of an occasion 
where over 500 people saw Jesus Christ in one setting. He went about saying this, not only with his words, not only through angelic messengers, not only through the women, not only through the apostles, not only through those that would write in the New Testament, but by virtue of walking among them for 40 days after his resurrection, here was what he was saying. I am alive. I have won. It is provided for. It is finished. You are free. If you will believe in me, if you will receive me, I will make you the sons and the daughters of God. Here I am. You don't have to fear the enemy. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to run and hide anymore. You don't have to fear your own sin. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in denial. You don't have to live in an absence of purpose because I am Jesus Christ. I am your king. I am alive. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit because I'm going to go sit on my throne and the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. He will reveal all things unto you. And so the, the, the plan of the Lord is not over for any of us. Resurrection Sunday is a day for you to get reacquainted with hope. Some of you who've never received this one that I've been talking about for 45 minutes, today's your day. Today is the day, not when you become religious, not when you get baptized, not when you join a church, not when you try to modify your behavior, but when you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I am what I am, but you are who you are. I bring what I am, what I know about me, and I lay it before everything I know about you. I don't know how all this works, Lord, but the one thing I know is I'm not running from you anymore. I surrender. I wave the white flag. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I want you on the throne of my heart. He's never said no to anybody, and you won't be the first. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning?